0: magnificent diamond hanging around her neck. And he just can't resist it. He says, ma'am, he says, I have to comment, that is a beautiful stone. I've never seen anything quite like that. And she says, yes, it is quite lovely. It's the Klopman diamond, but it comes with a curse. And he looked at it. and he says, well, ma'am, I don't want to be impetuous, but may I ask, what is the curse? And she says, Mr. Klopman. Laughter Your wives will love that story. (laughs) This morning what I'd like to do is launch us on a time of interaction over the question of the purpose and place of law in the life of the believer. I'm afraid we've got probably more material than we're going to be able to cover, but that's all right. We'll just get as far as we can and we'll quit. Let me give you an introduction to why I chose this as a topic for us to discuss and then have a word of prayer and get into it with you. Man has a craving for autonomy. And because of this, we're all lawbreakers. And as lawbreakers, we need to understand the purpose of law. Not just biblical law, but law in a generic sense of the word. How law impacts us in all of our lives. Now, all of us view law as restrictive. We grow up believing that law kills fun. What we need to see is that law is an asset in achieving the abundant life. If the scriptures teach us anything, it teaches us that. Now, man can perform in a certain way without understanding why he does so. But without convictions as to why, he's easily swayed. Understanding the nature and application of law, I would suggest to you, therefore, is essential. For without this understanding, you cannot properly relate to others, because there are boundaries in all relationships. Now, there are various kinds of law and various ways to express those kinds of law. In our time together, I am going to express them. This is arbitrary on my part. I'm simply saying I'm going to express them in three fundamental ways. Number one, natural law. That is, those unalterable laws that govern the universe. Secondly, moral law. These are the laws of revealed religion that govern the behavior of man, and they divide themselves into two parts. There are those moral laws that are timeless, that is, they are part of the nature and character of God. And then there are those moral laws that are rooted in time, that is, They're instituted by God for a period of time and then rescinded. And then finally, civil law. These are laws enacted by the legislature that are not moral in nature. They deal with such things as the regulation of commerce, traffic, taxation, etc. Now we're going to look at natural law and moral law. We're not going to deal with civil law in our time together, unless civil law touches the moral realm. Civil law is affirmed by Scripture when it doesn't violate Scripture. It's relative, subject to change by the legislature. It does not impact where we want to go unless, as I say, unless it touches the moral realm. Now, my approach to this subject is one of logic and reason. By that I mean I don't pretend to be an historian. I don't pretend to be an expert on comparative religions. But I do understand, in part, the implications of religious systems. And I do know for sure that there is a pyramid of learning, And as you have this pyramid of learning, you have, for example, philosophy and science and so forth, but at the top of this, and this is the reason I draw this, is theology. Now as Skip pointed out in the session before, all of us have a truth system that shapes how we see and perceive reality. And that truth system is ultimately a theological issue. We're going to get into that a little bit more. But theology shapes your worldview, which in turn shapes everything else. How you see reality, how you perceive other people as you interact with them. Now, let me point out to you that you cannot have law without a lawgiver. Not only does it have to be a lawgiver, it has to require accountability. You cannot have revelation without a transcendent God. Not only does he have to be transcendent, he has to speak. Now, these are obvious. These are relating the obvious. You cannot have sin without a personal God. Because without a personal God, against whom do you sin? You cannot have moral law without a personal God who has the power to exercise authority over all pretenders. In short, you cannot have moral law in a multiplicity of gods. In polytheism, morality is impossible. For which God do you obey. Who gets to vote? Then there is an argument among the gods as to who is supreme and who gets to decide whose rules finally rule. This is the reason why, parenthetically, gentlemen, men love the idea of many roads to heaven. Because that makes man autonomous. If there are many ways to get there, then you're God because you get to decide like I say that is what's so very very attractive about this now in none of this do the pagan gods qualify or pretend to qualify let's say that again to you the idea of a transcendent God who has spoken who stands in an independent, autonomous way himself, who holds man accountable and has revealed his will to man, the God of the Bible is absolutely unique. The pagan religions, no other religious system in the world, even pretends that such is the case. Kelly was reading to us a a portion out of the Hindu religion last night. How do you submit to a force? How do you have a relationship with the force of gravity? It's ridiculous. Sinai, gentlemen, Sinai is absolutely unique in the annals of history. We who have cut our teeth with it, and have read it, and thought about it, and live with it, yawn at the thought. But if you stand back and look at it objectively, there is nothing quite like it. Now think with me for a moment. Here is the creator God of the universe, and he doesn't commune with a man on the backside of the desert by himself as he contemplates his navel. But here is a God who meets a nation of people and speaks to them directly in a voice that all the people can hear and understand and pronounces to them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments with such force that it terrifies the people. They take Moses aside and say, you go get the rest from him and tell us what he said. We can't handle it. Now, again, I tell you that there is no religion who even pretends that such a thing has ever happened. You may have a holy man in some religion who goes up on the hill and contemplates with nature and tries to come to grips with the forces that be and comes down and gives you his distilled wisdom. But it doesn't even smack of Sinai. Sinai, God gave us the law. Now all societies have rules governing the behavior of man, but only the God of the Bible, only societies who believe in the Bible, argue that they have their origin from God. Only the God of the Bible addresses how man treats his fellow man. This is what makes it so powerful and so absolutely unique. And the reason why I suggest that it's important. Now, as you've already been encouraged, I'd like you to interact with me. Not only that, I hope you disagree with me. I hope it gets you mad. I hope you walk away saying that buzzard's got to be wrong. I'm going to get in the Bible and prove him wrong because that's how we learn that's what the Bereans did in Acts 17 11. they were more noble than the Thessalonics, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so that's what I like that's what I covet now I've divided the series that I have into the following sections number one the nature of law now this is going to be the longest section We'll for sure get through it this morning. I'm not sure how much more we'll get through. Then secondly, law and justice. Thirdly, law and man's inability to govern himself. Next, law and love. Law and self-denial. And then finally, the Mosaic Covenant. Now, probably because of our time together, we won't get into that. It is the most controversial portion of my presentation. That's why I left it last. Without any luck at all, we don't have to get into it. So that's our, our plan of attack. Let's talk about the nature of law. And before doing it, let's pray. And Jackson, I'm going to ask you to do the honors for us, if you would, Please. Thank you. Gentlemen, law in its most general and comprehensive sense (coughs) signifies a rule of action applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action, animate and inanimate, rational and irrational. Thus this law must be prescribed by some superior which the inferior is bound to obey. As Plutarch, I believe it was, said, law is the king of mortal and immortal beings. That's why it is law. That is, laws are fixed and invariable. If there is deviation, it's not a law. For example, we used to say there was a law that what goes up must come down. Then we learned that what goes up doesn't necessarily come down. If we throw it up hard enough, it just takes off, goes into orbit, or... It doesn't come back down again, so we had to alter that. That was not a law. Now, cultures spawned by the Judeo-Christian religion taught that there's a personal God that stands above creation. That's what we mean by a transcendent God. Here is the created order, and He is above and independent and over it all. He superintends it all. He created the universe, And he created the laws by which the universe is governed. And those laws are inviolable. They are unchangeable. Now, this presupposes that history is linear. Because there is a transcendent God who brought it into existence, it's a God who also holds it accountable by bringing it to an end. Now all other religions teach, and all other, I'll underline that word all, all other religions teach that there is no personal transcendent God. He is, at best, as Kelly was reading from his little deal last night, a force, a force to be reckoned with, but only a force. He has no law governing how man treats his fellow man. If you disturb your fate, you can incur consequences. But those are not consequences that are ordained by a personal God who superintends your life and dictates how you ought to live. It's an impersonal force. He has no law governing how man treats his fellow man, and therefore there are no immutable laws that govern the universe. As he looks at it, from a reasonable perspective, he concludes that history is cyclical rather than linear. If man is to escape from this cycle, he has got to be passive rather than active. If he blends with the world of which he is a part, and it's the only deity that he knows, then hopefully in the transmigration of the soul or the reincarnating of the individual from one life to the next, to the next, to the next, that ultimately he'll get his act together and be so completely passive that when he dies, he ceases to exist by blending in with the world of which he is a part. He calls that nirvana. It's the closest to heaven his mind can conjure up. Now, thinking people everywhere, gentlemen, and every religion, every culture, all times, have understood predeterminism. As Skipper was talking this morning about the two parameters by which all men live their lives in Ecclesiastes 3, a time to be born and a time to die. Man is locked between these two. If history is cyclical, then man is passive. If history is linear, then man is active. If history is cyclical, he's passive because there are no laws that govern his behavior. If it's linear, then there are laws that govern his behavior, and he's active because he's got to give an account on the basis of how he obeyed those laws. There's no second chance, no opportunity to recycle and try it again. You only got one life, and eternity depends on how you lived it. Now, from this Judeo-Christian worldview came the birth of modern science and the assumption that the laws of nature are fixed and invariable. For example, the laws of gravity, speed of light, sound, and so forth, all of these come from the premise of the Bible, namely that there is a sovereign God who established the universe, and who put these laws into force, and that they are reliable and unalterable. For example, we build a rocket ship, and we launch it to the moon, convinced that the laws will not change. Now, when we launch it, the risk in our mind, now get this, the risk in our mind is never in the changing of the law, The risk is always in our application of the law as we put it into orbit. So, for example, when the space shuttle Challenger blew apart on takeoff, no one said it was the fault of a changing law. Everybody said it was the fault of man. Now, we may modify our understanding of law on the basis of new data, but we never argue the laws change. That's an oxymoron. So, for example, and I'm not a scientist, but I understand that sound travels at 740 miles per hour in air at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's influenced by the density of the medium through which it travels and the elasticity of that medium. I've just exhausted my knowledge. <laughs> but all of this, gentlemen, all of this is governed by exact, unchanging law. Now, no one says that the speed of law light I mean, excuse me, the speed of sound changes. They may argue that the circumstance through which sound travels changes it but the laws don't. (laughs) Now, a scientist may argue, and some of you sitting in here are scientists, that in his field of expertise, there's only degrees of probability. For example, in medicine and quantum mechanics and so forth, this is so. But understand that all of these science operate on the foundation of a set of laws that they assumed to be absolute and unchanging. Otherwise, they would have never got to where they now are. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, philosopher and mathematician, no friend of Christianity. I underline that, no friend of Christianity, because he said that a belief in a rationality of God is the basis of the earliest scientists who had an inexpungible belief that every detailed occurrence can be correlated with its antecedents in a perfectly definite manner, exemplifying general principles, without this belief, the incredible labors of science would be without hope. In other words, as a philosopher, he stands back and says, the scientific method would never have taken place without the premise of the Bible. give you an illustration the Chinese discovered gunpowder but they never developed it why because they did not see the world as defined by whitehead as defined by the Bible they viewed the gods as being arbitrary therefore when the gunpowder got wet it didn't explode and they concluded that it was because the gods were arbitrary sometimes it blew up and sometimes it didn't so they set it aside It wasn't until we brought to it the template that said laws don't alter, the gods are not fickled, that we were able to make it work. Now, man is subject to the law of his creator. This is true in the natural realm. It is true in the moral realm. And as you all know, that this was the foundation of our great country. Thomas Jefferson declared that we hold these truths to be self-evident. That the laws governing the moral realm are as valid and unalterable as those governing the natural realm. Now this worldview freed man to pursue the wonders of nature but it bound him to the laws of God. And therein lies his dilemma. He's free, but bound. God's law is unchangeable and therefore predictable. Not so with the pagans. Pagan gods are unpredictable. They're whimsical, easily offended. The storms, the earthquakes, indicators of angry gods. God's law was safe when applied to science. So natural disasters were evaluated from the perspective of law. And that's the reason why, when the hurricane hit the East Coast a couple of days ago, we get all these views and everybody figures out exactly why it's doing what it's doing, and we talk about what we can do and predicting it and so forth, and the the factors that will go into making it move this way or that way, and everything is, if we understand the law, we understand exactly what's going on. That's the premise. So we say that God's law was safe when applied to science but God's law is terrible when applied to the will of man. Now this produced a bifurcation in man's world view. God's scientific law is absolute and unchanging. God's moral law is relative and changeable. Not because it's rational, but because man did not like to entertain the consequences of the same God governing both arenas. Now, this bifurcation was between reason and faith. The scientist says you arrive at natural law via reason, but you have to arrive at moral law via faith. You cannot discover moral law by reason conscience may affirm moral law but it does not make moral law now some natural laws gentlemen and some moral laws are counterintuitive that is they go contrary to reason Skip was talking about that a little bit in our last session we understand this in the natural realm For example, the speed of light. The speed of light is constant in reference to the individual, even when the individual is traveling at half the speed of light. So you got two twin boys. One gets in a rocket ship and goes half the speed of light and does it for a period of time and comes back. The boys are no longer the same age. Now that is counterintuitive. Or that space bends, says a scientist. That's counterintuitive. And so also in the moral law. And this is the reason why we have difficulty with them, because they don't coincide with reason. They're counterintuitive. That you've got to die in order to live. That is a counterintuitive idea. You cannot predict the consequences of sin. That's counterintuitive and so forth. We're happy to live with the idea that we cannot understand natural law because it does not alter our will. But we will not live with law in the moral realm that we cannot understand. In short, counterintuitive moral law is an anathema to us. What reason cannot accept reason rejects. Now the immutability of natural law teaches the immutability of moral law. If by definition law is immutable, then there is a natural law and there is a moral law which are equally immutable. So what we're saying is this bifurcation, this this division between the moral and the the natural was illogical and inconsistent. But it satisfied man's pragmatic desire to be secure and autonomous. I'm secure with natural law. I can predict exactly what will happen in the natural arena. And I'm autonomous in moral law. That is, I can do as I please. Now, we all know that the force of law is in accountability. The reason why natural law is law is because those laws are accountable to the Creator God who holds those laws accountable. If there is no personal transcendent God who orders the universe then you do not have law in the natural arena any more than you have it in the moral arena. So we will to believe it true in the moral in the natural arena and will the opposite in the moral. Alan Bloom, a philosopher out of, I think, the University of Chicago, wrote a book a number of years ago titled... The Closing of the American Mind. Any of you familiar with that book or read it? If you are, you'll remember that this is precisely his argument, that this bifurcation does not work. We, We live off of the seed corn of earlier harvests. And that if a man is skeptical regarding truth being absolute in the moral arena, in a short period of time, he'll just simply transfer it over to the natural arena because the two are indivisible. And in the closing of the American mind, Alan Bloom feared for academia because it had generated a generation of skeptics who no longer viewed truth as absolute and therefore could not bring to the scientific arena those presuppositions that are essential for scientific work and discovery. That's why he wrote the book. In light of this, let me make the following observations or applications. Number one, if there is no God, then the forces of nature are not predictable. Then everything is by chance. I cannot know, therefore, that the sun will rise in the east and set in the west. I know it happened yesterday. I know it happened today, or at least it's in the process of happening. There's only a degree of probability that it'll happen tomorrow. That's all I can do. I can only talk in terms of Possibility or probability. No certainty. Therefore, if this is true, the disruptions in nature ought to be common. And if the skeptic was consistent, he, rather than the Bible-believing Christian, would be more prone to believe in what we call miracles. Because if there is no natural law which governs the universe, unalterable because there is a sovereign who controls and rules it all, then we ought to expect men to walk on water and the dead to raise and the sun to stand still and, and, and. Belief in the laws of nature is to acknowledge Nature's God. And the very argument of the skeptic regarding miracles is the basis by which he condemns himself. Because in that skepticism, he affirms the existence of the sovereign God who declares the laws of nature to be absolute. Any questions or comments That's exactly right. Yeah. not only are they pragmatic, they're syncretistic. We're all borrowing from one another. This is a little bit of feel on this, Lane, but let me suggest to you, gentlemen, that this is the reason why the preaching of the gospel in our age, from my perspective, i have no less to be right, this is one man's view, is more difficult than in the first century. Because in the first century, the gospel came upon the stage of human history, hitting men fresh. And what has happened in the 2,000 years, men have accommodated themselves because of the pricking of their conscience and because of pure pragmatism, as you point out, so that they glean from the Bible and from truth and from Jesus Christ those elements that they want to incorporate without incorporating the person of Jesus Christ in the process. So communism is a Christian heresy. Never produced communism. Even though India today is socialistic, it's just simply a pragmatic syncretism. That's all it is. And what is true in this realm is true in the realm of science as well. Yes. yes I I hear you loud and clear on that but again it's a contradiction of terms because it's assuming that they're fixed when there's no basis for it being fixed right but you see you have no basis for assuming that they will be fixed tomorrow we're just going to act like it is that's the pragmatism but that is what Bloom suggests will bring us back to the dark ages Because if I come to the university as a skeptic, then I ask you as my science teacher, why should I assume it? You've got no basis for believing that if I go up, I'll go up and come back safely. Maybe it really wasn't the fault of man. Maybe it was the whimsicalness and the uncertainty of the laws that caused the shuttle to blow up. On what basis do you say that when I experiment on some thing and get a negative result, that it's my fault rather than the law's fault? How do you say that? On what basis do you conclude that? It's by faith. Ultimately, it is by faith. Are we together? Well, stuff on natural law, is that what um, the Bible is referring to in Psalm 1902 where it says the heavens are declaring? I think in part, yes. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. Exactly. If there is no transcendent sovereign God who orders and regulates without variation the laws of nature, on what basis can you be predictable? As a scientist, how can you, in the practice of medicine, predict that this is going to cause this? Right. But, and that's the point. That's the point I'm trying to make with, uh, with Brick. So far, so good. But when your experience shows that it doesn't, to what conclusion do you come? You can say, it was my fault, or it was the law's fault. The law changed. The rule changed. Now, all scientists have worked on the assumption when that happens that the fault was with me, not with the law. So when the space shuttle broke up up there, we said, we did something wrong. Nobody ever said the law changed. But if you bring skepticism into the equation, says Alan Bloom, and I think he's absolutely right, in a generation or so they're going to say, that wasn't our fault, the rule changed. Again, please? Something that would be a synonym Constance is only possible. If there's a God. Yes. you made a statement
1: at the end of your soliloquy about God.
0: Yeah, I'm saying that the skeptic ought to affirm the disruptions of nature which the believer calls miracles. And that it is the believer who works from the premise of inviolable law of God that would be the more skeptical of miracles. So, the skeptic ought to say, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. I, I mean, that should be a common occurrence all the time. Oh, yeah, Jesus walked on water. I mean, well, that didn't surprise me. Everything's unpredictable. Well, the sun stood still. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Why not? But see, because he says, not so. He argues from the bases that it cannot be so and the only reason it cannot be so is because God is. Checkmate. Yes. Exactly. Yes? Would then any manipulation of the law be a miracle of God? Define what you mean by manipulation of the law. Any variation in natural law?
1: Not variation, but disruption.
0: Okay, a disruption of natural law would have to be a miracle, yes. Otherwise, it's not law, gentlemen. Pardon? Well, for
1: instance, if you check the variation on i supposed
0: to just disruption. Just is fine. I have no I've no no fixation on variation. So yeah, I use insinums. They may not be I yield oh great white father. Yes <laughs> sir. <laughs> 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 We call them as we seize them, don't we? <laughs> yes.
1: So for skeptic that really understands the dilemma, the only way out then is for him to come to the conclusion somehow that there can be
0: a law without a law given. Which is an oxymoron. It's not a law. The other way Exactly. He just doesn't care what he says. Right. That's exactly right. So he'll say that we'll, we'll, we'll live in the, in the arena of degrees of probability. We'll eliminate absolutes, even in the scientific realm. But again, if Bloom is right, and I think he is, that'll come back to Hannes in a generation or two. Yes. Correct. And it my maybe my was wrong, which was probably based upon what I to be a law or to be a high of Right. Right. one thing that's missing in your formula. It sounds great, but there's one thing that's missing. And that is the science, the experimentation itself assumes certain things are absolute and in, un, unchanging, inviolable, invariable. And so you can't even run the experiment without those. So for example, if you take this molecule and you add it with this molecule, you're going to get this. Now, If I do it again tomorrow, I'm still going to get this. Otherwise, I can't run the experiment. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, light travels at 186,000 miles per second per second. Now, that doesn't vary. If it varies, I can't run the experiment. Water boils at certain degrees Fahrenheit with these particular conditions. If that's not so, I can't run my experiment. Water freezes at certain degrees. Always will, providing I keep these factors constant. If that's not so, I can't run my experiment.
1: My hurts already. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's progress. If any more questions, maybe towards the end.
0: Okay. Why then do people resist the law? This is second application or observation. Why do people resist the law? I think there are two reasons. One is pride. That is they don't want anybody telling them what to do. It's not an issue of whether they get right or wrong. It's simply they resent being told what to do. You and I know people who are truly rebels without a cause. There are people that you and I know at least I know some of them I, I assume you do as well who systematically step into harm's way and self-destruct for no logical reason. It's just simply stubbornness and woefulness. The second reason is they don't believe it's in their best interest. That's what Skip was talking about earlier. Number three. Understand that no society can exist without the presence of law. Now, you may refute the existence of absolute moral law, but you cannot have society without assuming that law in the moral realm is absolute. Let me illustrate for you. You may say to me, well, Henriksen, I'm an anthropologist and I believe that uh, law is cultural. And that the laws of the United States are cultural and are different from the laws of Arian Jaya and they don't have to be the same. So we go down to some tribe of headhunters in Arian Jaya and they've got their laws and their laws are different than our laws. Therefore, law is relative. I say to you, point well made, but understand that you cannot take the two societies and commingle them. It only works if you keep them completely separate and autonomous. Men cannot live in community without assuming that law is absolute. That morality is absolute. Everybody, even the raving liberal, admits this. And the debate today is not over whether or not law is relative, moral law is relative or absolute. The debate today is over who gets to determine the absolutes. If that were not so, gentlemen, there would be no protests on the university campus. The protest is the argument that truth is absolute, and I get to define it. Number four. The existence of absolute moral law is attested by judging. We've talked about this before, so I'll go over it very quickly. Man is incapable of not judging. When I judge your behavior in any way, shape, or form, either in thought, word, or deed, it's based on the assumption that there's a standard of morality that is absolute to which both of us are amenable. When I'm driving down the highway and I get in line to get off on the exit and some guy goes way up ahead and then cuts in, I say to myself, that buzzard, that's not fair. That is, I'm assuming that there is a right and a wrong that is applicable to both him and to me. I am right and he is wrong. Is that not true? So every time you make a moral pronouncement of any kind at all, you're attesting to the the premise that truth is absolute in the moral realm take next with you the subject of law and justice. I think most people, if not all, would agree that one of the principal jobs of law is the defining and ensuring of justice. Now, the problem is that there's a difference between morality and legality. Everybody understands that. I remember, oh, it's been a couple of years now, I was watching a film in our living room on video with my kids, the name of which eludes me. But the storyline goes something like this. There's this young fledgling attorney who is the defense attorney for a murderer. And he gets the guy off only to find out the guy was guilty. Pardon? Whatever. But yeah, no comment on that one. But afterward, the the murderer begins to toy and play as a cat with a mouse. The attorney taunting. And the attorney is beside himself; he doesn't know what to do. And so he goes to his law professor. We don't understand why he's in the hospital, but you get the impression he's kind of dying of cancer or something. And he's so he goes to visit him there in the hospital and talks to him about it. And the professor says this, and this is the reason why I bring this story up. The professor says that in front of the U.S. Supreme Court is the Statue of Justice. And on a bright, sunshiny day, the statue casts a shadow, which is a replica of the statue. But it is not the same as the statue. They are different, even though one replicates the other. The professor said, the statue represents Justice. The shadow represents law. The purpose of law is to define as best it can what justice looks like. But even in its brightest and clearest moment can never be anything more than a shadow. And that the purpose of the legislature is to keep going back to the statue and asking, what does it look like and how can we replicate it most accurately? Now, to myself, that, that, that was insightful. That, I, I liked that. It was good. I can't remember the rest of the movie. I can't remember how it turned out, but that part I do remember. He wrote a book to make a lot of money. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> now, God's law is the exception. In that we say that God's law defines justice exactly. That the law of God and the justice of God are one and the same. But all of law of man is only a replica of justice. That's why we make a distinction between what is legal and what is moral. Now, what I want you to do is is look with me at the Old Testament. This thing played out. It's around the concept of justice that the sacrificial system was created. The most holy of all Jewish days is recorded for us in Leviticus 16. This is the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Yom, the Hebrew word for day, Kippur, the day of covering. The word in English, atonement, means in Hebrew, covering. It's the day of covering. And just very briefly, by way of review, you'll remember that the holy place had two compartments. There was the holy part and then the most holy of holies. And into that second part, the holy of holies, the high priest alone could go and only once a year. And then twice on that one day. He brings the blood of a heifer in for himself and then the blood of a goat for the people. And each time, as he comes into the Holy of Holies, there there in the middle is the Ark of the Covenant. And in it are the tablets of the law, among other things. And sitting on top of it is the mercy seat, and over it the cherubims of glory, and over the whole thing is the presence of God, either in a pillar of fire by night or a cloud by day. So you have the presence of God hovering over the law of God, and in between the two is the mercy seat, upon which the blood of the animal is sprinkled, symbolizing the covering of the sins of the people so that God in his justice will not execute the law and kill us all. Now this, as I say, was a very solemn and holy day in Israel's Jewish calendar. Now, when I finished reading Leviticus 16 and was worked my way through it, then I read on Let me read to you. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to. Put a note with me. Chapter 20. If anybody among you gives any of your children to Moloch, kill him. Verse 6, if anybody turns to a familiar spirit, killing. 11, if anybody sees his father's nakedness, killing. Verse 10, if any man commits adultery, killing. Him. Killing. Him. Killing. Him. Killing. Kill kill Chapter 21, killing. 22, killing. I thought, said, what ha- whoa, wait, what happened to Yom Kippur? <laughs> i mean, mercy. we got all the sins covered, and then God says, kill them all. I scratched my head. I thought, what's going on here? And what God says is, the man may be forgiven, but justice is executed. Killing. God charges the individual with forgiveness. He charges the state with justice. When the state forgives, there is anarchy and oppression. When the individual executes justice, there is the destruction of relationships. That's why the two have to be separate. You see this played out, for example, in Joshua chapter 7. Remember, Achan took of the accursed thing. It's an interesting story. They conquered Jericho, Achan took of the accursed thing, they got beat at Ai. They finally found the culprit, Achan. And Joshua comes to him and he says, Achan, ask God to forgive you and give God the credit because you're a dead man. God may forgive you, but we're not. Because it's not our job to forgive you, it's our job to execute you. Now, in the New Testament, this is a lot more clear than in the Old. In the New Testament, for example, in passages like Matthew 18, verses 1 through 35... Jesus said, If you don't forgive, I'm not going to forgive you. As a matter of fact, when I taught you to pray, I taught you to pray, Forgive us as we forgive others. Therefore, I'm going to take you up on it, and I'm only going to forgive you in eternity to the degree and in the same manner and in the same measure that you forgave your fellow man here on earth. Pretty heavy stuff. So he says... You are charged with the task of forgiveness. But he says in Romans chapter 13, the state is charged with the task of justice. The powers that be do not bear the sword in vain. They execute the wrath of God upon the disobedient. Now remember, forgiveness is the setting aside of justice. You can have mercy... Are you going to have justice, but you cannot have both? Now, in the Old Testament, as I say, it's not all that clear. In the Old Testament, there is a confusion between the two. Now, all through the Old Testament, the people saw clearly the need for God to forgive them. Yes. Hold on that. Hold on that. I'd say that the three of them are all completely different. That is, justice, forgiveness, and consequences. But we'll get to that. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament, then it's not all that that clear. It was very, very clear in the minds of the people that they needed to be forgiven by God. The sacrificial system taught that in abundance. And you find the psalmist crying out, Oh, God, forgive me, forgive me. Everybody's crying out, God, forgive him. See, that was clear. What was not easily understood was the need to forgive on the horizontal. That is to forgive our fellow man. And what part of what really confused it was the way God set it up with the cities of refuge. Now, you remember that there were six of those established by God throughout the Jewish community six cities of refuge to which the individual could flee from the justice of the offender, of the offended one. The Old Testament, of course, distinguished between murder and manslaughter. The murderer, if he went to the city of refuge, had no hope. They'd drag him out and kill him. The man who committed manslaughter, however, could go to the city of refuge and be safe as long as he didn't leave it. If he left it, During the life of the high priest, he was fair game for anybody who wanted to execute retribution. So, for example, turn with me if you'd like to Numbers 35, verses 24 through 27. 35, Numbers 35, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you're in Deuteronomy, you've gone too far, turn left. Numbers 35, verses 24 to 27. One of you read those, please. A little louder? Go ahead. (laughs)
1: protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. If the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled, the avenger of blood finds him outside the city. The avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder.
0: Okay. In short, gentlemen, the people practiced Vigilanteism. When you think about it, the system was beautiful in its simplicity. There was no judicial system. There was no police force. No sheriff's department. No FBI. It was a communal responsibility. As the people of Israel lived in community, they knew who the offenders were. And they were called, called to call them... To account and they were the ones to execute so for example if I cheated on my wife and I lived among you one of you would find out no and what had happened you take me before the group and in the mouth of two or three witnesses, word, uh, witnesses every word was established and I was a dead man it was simple Just, just that was it there was no need for the judiciary God did not delegate the authority of judging to the magistrate. There were no magistrates. God delegated the authority to the community. It was our responsibility to keep our house clean. Much like, as I was thinking about this, the military academies are supposed to be governed. When a man goes to the U.S. Military Academy, he signs a creed to the effect that he will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate any who do. It's a code of honor. That I am bound by my solemn oath that if it exists in my midst, I will not tolerate it. That's what Israel was. They were bound by that oath. As I say it was simple and beautiful in its simplicity the individual was responsible and when justice was executed all were instructed and all feared. Now this does not mean that there's no hint of horizontal forgiveness in the Old Testament but primarily those calls are found in the latter prophets. Like for example Micah 6.8 He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require thee, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. But those tones, especially in the, that part of the literature, in the giving of the law, is not all that crystal clear. you got to hunt for it. Thus, we find, for example, in the Psalms, King David praying, not for forgiveness, but for justice and vengeance on his enemies. That dirty, rotten, slob old oh God, did you see what he did to me? Get him, and I mean, get him good. Huh? Isn't that what he said? All through the Psalms. Yeah, and. David, the feeble man who hasn't got enough warmth to, to, I mean, can't generate enough energy to warm his own body. He's got to have this little gal lying next to him just to give him some body. He, the last thing he says to Solomon, he says, Now, before I die, stick him. <laughs> he's got his hit list of people he's got to get. Short on forgiveness. Long on justice. In the Old Testament, let me make the following observations and applications. Number one, let me suggest to you that there's a reversal of the Old Testament mindset today. In the Old Testament, they were short on horizontal forgiveness and long on justice. Today, it's just the opposite. And what it has done is it destroyed our sense of security and well being in the community men are fearful of letting their families out the door after dark And gentlemen let me remind you of what you already know namely that when we lose our grip on God we get confused regarding justice we have a hard time defining it what exactly is it without God we see that this is the only life we've got, and therefore we panic about taking a man's life because this is all there is. We conclude that society's got to be redemptive because God isn't. There is no God to be redemptive. We lose our sense of proportion when we don't take into account the eternal dimension. Any questions or comments? Observation number two. It is easy to confuse being vindictive and being unjust. The two are not synonyms. Vindictiveness is wrong only because God forbids it. It is not wrong in and of itself. There is such a thing as being justly vindictive. And let me remind you, gentlemen, that God... Is justly vindictive. Any questions or observations? I, oh. Do not confuse justice and vindictiveness. Being vindictive is not unjust. There is such a thing as vindictive justice. Or just vindictiveness. God is justly vindictive. Would that be the same as yes. Yes, yes. I'm sorry? God is justly vindictive command. Man is commanded not to. When man sits as the magistrate, he's commanded to. But he's acting now, not on behalf of himself, but on behalf of the community. And there he is commanded to.
1: Yes. The
0: yes. Correct. It was only supposed to work in a the theocracy, and even there, it didn't work, as you know. We'll get into that a little bit more later. Yes, Skip. Wouldn't the, uh the law today, or the magistrate today, be exercising the justice not only on the part of the community, but on, on behalf of God? Yes. Romans thirteen. Right. Right. And society cannot function without justice. It's just that clear delineation as to whose job it is is so very, very important. And I suggest to you is, to a large extent, lost on us today.
1: I will vindictive.
0: Correct. Exactly. Yes, Steve. Is God in
1: control of all decisions of governments, like the heart of the king is in the hand of God, like rivers of water, and he turns it whichever way
0: he wishes? Yes and no. I don't want to go any further than that with it. It's one of those delightful theological tensions that Kelly introduced us to last night. Yes. So is the forgiveness mandatory and the justice mandatory? Yes. Yes. Forgiveness is mandatory in individual relationships. Justice is mandatory in the state. If I
1: kill someone you know, you have to forgive me, yet you have to put me to death,
0: too. I don't put you to death. The state does. And by the way, see, see, and that, for all of its weaknesses, we understand that in our system very, very clearly. In criminal matters, the victim or the victim's family does not execute justice. The state says the crime is committed against the state. That's the reason why, for example, irrespective of how you feel in the the O.J. Simpson trial, the Goldman family did not try O.J. Simpson. The state tried O.J. Simpson. So the state won't let you, even if you wanted to, be vindictive. Yes? What's the difference between vengeance and justice? Vengeance has justice as its aim if properly executed. Justice is proper accountability for the law. Justice implies law. More than discipline. Because discipline can be redemptive. The objective of justice is not redemptive.
1: That God, the issue of justice is God's. It's not the people. It is God. God has allowed us to execute this thing, whatever it is, to get the people, for instance, to execute them, to take them away from destroying the state. The people have a right to defend, the state has a right to defend itself against intruders that are going to destroy it. Right. But the justice is God's. It's not the state's. It's not the people. That's not what I'm hearing you say this time. Maybe I'm just quoting you an earlier conversation here.
0: What did you hear me say? What did you say that was different?
1: What I heard you say before was, that when a man commits a crime, uh, that God is merciful, but the perfect justice is God's. But He isn't. Delegated to the state the right to protect itself. Therefore, if there's a perpetrator, the state has the right to take his life. So much so in the theocracy, he prescribed it to get him out of society because they're going to destroy society and God will handle him in eternity. That's not the state's problem. God will deal with it. Correct. What I heard you say this time there is mercy in heaven, God may forgive them. The state its the state's job to execute justice against them and kill them. I think there's two kinds of justice. You yeah. talk about justice for God and justice for man to man. We're talking about a relationship between man and man. I mean, God is a just God. He's going to hold me accountable. Same token, he's a God, and I'm not, even, not even only am I not going to get everything I deserve, but I'm going to get something I don't deserve because of grace. And I think that from what we're talking, what I hear him saying is it's more of a justice here in society established under the law, how man has to, has to exercise <laughs> this sense of justice for our society to maintain as it relates to the law that we've been given by God. Very careful because justice as defined by society is not necessarily justice as defined by God. The Nazis claimed they had a law and they were order and justice, but God would not, I don't consider that
0: just. Yes, yeah, see, that's right. But remember, I, that was the illustration of the movie where he says that's the difference between the shadow and the statue. Ostensibly, the objective of the shadow is to replicate as accurately as it can the statue. It is not the statue, can never be the statue, but it seeks to be the statue. Now, we may look at Nazi Germany and say they erred terribly in this. I don't think they their goal was justice from God's perspective. That may be. That may be. I'm not sure that the Supreme Court would say that we're trying to have justice from God's perspective. But Gail... Let me divide it this way. I divide it horizontally between heaven and earth and vertically between justice, mercy, and consequences. The three are very, very different. And they play out differently in each quadrant. Not quadrant. Those aren't four. In each section. Thank you. I told you my... Science is very limited. All right? So, we say that the reason why we get to heaven in the first place is because justice is satisfied by the cross, and therefore, God can afford to be merciful to us without violating his justice. So as Romans says, he's both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. But that does not eliminate consequences. Are we agreed? To play it back, God is both just and the justifier, that God will have mercy on me because of Christ on the cross, but I will be held accountable at the judgment seat. Correct. But see, God's mercy and forgiveness is absolute. They're to be remembered no more. But the consequences are the same. In, it's just that they're here instead of down here. In this case, in this, that part of the illustration, this being hell rather than earth. Down here, God charges the state with the task of being just. When the state tries to be merciful, everything gets gummed up. Then the law is despised, oppression rules. and we have the situation that we've got today, where men are afraid to let the kids out after dark. God charges the individual with being forgiving. And says that your failure to do it or your willingness to do it will appreciably impact your eternity. But again, in this, as well as in this, the consequences are entirely different. So let me illustrate for you. You have your child. You're raising your child. And you say... Are there consequences for your child's behavior? Your son does wrong. So your son says to you, being very precocious, Well, Dad, did not Jesus die for my sins? And your answer would be what? Yes. Okay. If that is the case then why aren't I forgiven? To which you would say, okay, good. That means there are no consequences. You mean I still can't ride my bike for a week? Is that what you're saying to me? Then what good does forgiveness give me? It restores the relationship. Okay, gentlemen, that's exactly the way it is with God. You become His child by the new birth in Jesus Christ. And when you come to the Father and say, Father, forgive me, He says, count it done. But it does not impact the consequences. Yes. Yes. Justice
1: and um, the individual being required to forgive. What about a civil lawsuit where one person is hurt or offended or defrauded and brings the case in court? Is he not forgiving and he's seeking justice or vengeance and therefore he's violating God's law? And in the Old Testament, they had this type of restitution to repay for people who are injured and Things like that in the New Testament says Christians stay out of it against each other, but...
0: Should we do it? Uh, if you're not a Christian against a Christian, or not. Okay, I'll, I'll take that on very briefly, but only briefly. All right, because I'm afraid otherwise we'll never we'll never get ourselves extracted from that. <laughs> Gentlemen, God calls upon us as His obedient servants to make sure that every relationship in life is redemptive. That is, in every relationship I have in life, whether it's my wife or my children, my employer, my employee, my neighbor, it makes no difference who it is, I am to view them from a redemptive posture. That is, I am to see them from an eternal perspective, and I'm seeking to influence them for the sake of Jesus Christ, either in the direction of evangelism or in the direction of edification. Are we in agreement on this? So you have this hard-nosed Philistine that just issued you out illegally of $100,000. And you're going to say, I'm going to draw in court of that guy in court, civil court. It doesn't prohibit it in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6 says that I can't do it with my fellow Christian, but this guy doesn't profess us to be a believer. I mean, he's just a hard-nosed pagan out to try to skin me, and he got away with it this time, and I'm going to get him back. You have to come back and ask yourself, am I seeking to be redemptive in my relationship with that man as I haul him before the magistrate and get my $100,000 back? If not, watch out. If so, press ahead. If in doubt, there's a way to find out. And the way is very, very simple. And that is, say, God, since my motives are impure and I don't know what they are, I covenant to you that whatever I get from the guy, I'll give it away to you. That way, I'm not involved. Yes?
1: If that situation would not involve an individual, but let's say you like a corporation or something, then do you carry it over that you're not really being an example of what you described, although you're not involved in
0: don't know a man's motives. Don't know a man's hearts. Have a hard time sorting out my own. All I can do is warning. As I try to warn myself. Yes. right. Well, remember we did say, my brother, that in the Old Testament there were traces of the need to forgive. What does the Lord require of thee, old man? But to do justly, to love mercy, mercy and forgiveness are synonyms, and to walk humbly with thy God. So it's there. It's just not there with the force that it is in the New Testament. But remember Jesus said, let me let me let me tell you how to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, how to be thy name. Forgive us our sins, in the same way we forgive those who sin against us. Now God, I want to go on record. That's how I want you to treat me. Is that not what you pray? And that's how we have to live. I want you in the arena of forgiveness to treat me the same way I treat other people. This is scary stuff, guys. I, I know it is. Yes? We saw how our conscience was <laughs> a constant state and you said it was muddy. I see the effects of it all, but I'm not sure how I got to the effects
1: of it in the sense that we wanted to be forgiving and the state ends up what we feel and how we act into our laws. So, you know, my question, I guess, is
0: how we need to draw the line between the two. Between? Between uh, people and state. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very clearly. And I, that's why I would suggest to you that this is, the state functions here and the individual ju- functions here. That line is very clear. Very sharp. The individual, the state. I'm sorry? Well, the state has got to be able to define morality. Otherwise, it can't function. That's why I said all societies, remember I said that earlier, all societies function with a standard of morality. Otherwise, they disintegrate. They should be merciful in their own relationship. But, but when the state tries to mix forgiveness and mercy, then it errs. Now, what we do, what we try to do, is we say to the, to the magistrate, to the judge, uh, we're, we're going to try to give you a little bit of discretion here because not every case is the same. They're extenuating circumstances. So what we'll do is we're going to ask you then, on in this infraction, that it will be no less than and no greater than, and therefore it's in your discretion to make the decision in between those two. And so therefore the court can exercise leniency in the sense that it'll move in the direction of the lighter rather than the heavier sentence because the judge perceives that the circumstances warrant that. The state allows him to do that. And we all affirm the validity of that. We say that that's, within, within proper parameters, that's right. But I would suggest to you that even in our own country, there is a tremendous amount of ill ease over the obscuring of the role of the court in handling morality and criminality. And that's the reason why we feel so unsafe. Yes.